Lord invited your, uh, no, uh, <laughs> uh, turn in your Bibles to Matthew 27:62. Gordon invited your attention to uh, Matthew 27. This is Easter, a special day, of course, for the church and for uh, Christianity and what we believe. Uh, dependent, of course, on the virgin birth of Christ and then the death, burial, and bodily resurrection of Christ. That happened in 32 or 33 A.D., depending on how some people uh, figure the dates. So it's almost 2,000 years. So for 2,000 years now, these messages have been preached uh, all across the world in various different languages and cultures and continents. Uh, still proclaiming the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what we want to do here this morning, too. The resurrection is the pivotal point of all history, after all. We are just a spot in history. As a matter of fact, all of Earth's history is a spot in eternity, right? As God has always existed and always will exist. But the cross... And this resurrection is the intersection of that eternity. And it was the intersection for you, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, when you found that you could get off that road that leads to destruction and on the road that leads to eternal life, then you took it, I hope, and you became a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel, after all, according to 1 Corinthians 15, is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And once you believe that, and accept it as your own, everything changes in this world, and I hope that it has for you. It's interesting that only Matthew has the story, as Gordon began with us in verse 62, about these soldiers coming to Pilate to secure the tomb. Matthew is the one that, that tells us about uh, this story. Now, all four Gospels, of course, speak of the resurrection and give it to us in a unique way, but... Uh, uh, Matthew, it's interesting, uh, is a tax collector. He worked for the Roman government, uh, and yet he's a Jew. And he saw the change in his life. He saw what it was to go out from under that darkness and into the light of Christ. And so he's uniquely uh, qualified to give us this double perspective of what it was like for these Roman employees uh, to try to cover up the resurrection and then uh, the fantastic uh, uh, view that we have in chapter 28 of the resurrection itself. Now, as you read this, it's always been interesting to me that uh, the writers give us the point of view from outside the tomb, not inside the tomb. I'll speak more about that in a minute. But uh, we have to look from outside, just as uh, Matthew had to, uh, Mark had to, John had to, look from the outside and wonder what's going on on the inside. As a matter of fact, isn't it kind of interesting as you read this, uh, you and I might, uh, when we come to chapter 28 and verse 1, you know, we, we want to change all of a sudden and have a, a big uh, hurrah, and yet these writers just go on in a very simple, direct, almost quiet way to the resurrection morning, telling us the facts, because that's what we need. We just need to know the facts. We need to know what happened. And also, I should mention, too, that the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, give us four perspectives of the same thing. As I've given this illustration before, if you stood a statue in the middle of this room and put a 
one person in each of the four corners and you ask each person one at a time, what do they see? Uh, the person over here may be describing the back of the statue's head and the left ear, but the person over there is describing the front and the right side. And you, say, you might say, well, that's contradictory. No, it's just four, two different perspectives of the same thing. Because critics have always taken Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and said, oh, there's lots of disagreement here. One is saying it this way, another is saying it that way. And they don't understand that it's four perspectives of exactly the same thing, and these accounts are reconciled easily so that we understand each comes from his own perspective. But all of us come from a perspective of not understanding and then understanding. Uh, like Matthew does here, of being an unbeliever and then being a believer. As a matter of fact, these disciples wondering, why does Jesus have to die and why did this happen? And then realizing after they see him after the resurrection, oh, that's why. And later writing about it in such a way that we have here. So in your bulletin, you have uh, a couple thoughts and you can follow uh, along with me if you would like. Uh, we're just dividing this into these two parts, what happens uh, before the resurrection and what happens afterwards. So I call it the human view and the divine view. Uh, maybe the, the view that you might have had before you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet when you realized the truth of what happened, you had this divine view of the, of the resurrection. So first in chapter 27, verse 62 down to 66, we have this human view, the world's view, even unbelieving view, I, I suppose that we could call it. It's a view of sin and death. How do we protect a dead man? How do, we, how do we cover up what we want to cover up? And that's what's going on in these uh, verses. So here are my three thoughts. First of all, there's this selection of information that we see in verses 62 and 63 again. So the, the chief priests, the scribes, they come together to Pilate saying, Sir, we remember that that deceiver said, While he was yet alive, after three days I will rise again. A few thoughts here. Number one is their hypocrisy. Here are these Jewish people on the, on the holy day, because uh, whether this is Friday or whether it's Saturday, uh, depending on what day you believe Jesus died, it's a high day, according to the Jews. That is a holy day like the Sabbath. And here these leaders are saying, you know, we have to hurry up and get this crucifixion done and get him in the grave before the Sabbath because we don't want to desecrate the Sabbath. And yet here are these high priests, number one, going to a Gentile in his office and talking to him, which is a no-no. And the other is that they're doing it on the high day. They're doing it on the Sabbath day. So here they are talking about people breaking the law, and yet they're breaking the law themselves. Secondly is the name-calling, I guess you would call it here, that deceiver. The word is planes. You know, we get, we get the word deception or deceiver from the Greek word planes, which we get our word planet from. And sometimes we refer to this, this phenomenon as a shooting star, something that shoots across the sky and then, and then goes away. Deceiving is a planet that's out of orbit, some, some uh, body that's traveling across the sky and goes off into nowhere. That's what deception does to people. So that's the word here. He's a deceiver, and we know that he is. We've already made that conclusion. And then thirdly, it's interesting to me in verse uh, 62 and 63 especially that, that they recall bits and pieces that they want to recall. We remember that he said, 
three days and I will rise again. You know, even the disciples had a hard time remembering that. Uh, they couldn't understand uh, what he was talking about when he said, you destroy this body and in three days I, I, I will make it rise again. But these people do. Those that have uh, something against him do. They remember these details and they try to hold it against him. So this selection of information is kind of uh, unique. They've already decided, you understand, that the resurrection is impossible. And that's the world's view of whether we're talking Christmas or Easter, whether, whether we're talking creation or the second coming of Christ. They've already decided these things are impossible, these things don't happen. And so they're going about in their life to arrange their things the way they need because they never believe these kinds of things happen. You know, there's this interesting episode you remember in Acts chapter 17 when Paul went to Mars Hill in Athens, and he's there with the intelligentsia of the day and these people who were the most intelligent, the brightest uh, of anywhere around in the culture of the, of the Greeks. And, and Paul is preaching on Mars Hill, and as he does, he's coming down to the resurrection. The, the Areopagus, the Mars Hill, had in their constitution, as it were, there is no life after death. So no matter what we talk about on this hill, you can't talk about life after death. Where is that going to leave the Apostle Paul? Well, you get to verse 31, and it goes like this. Because Paul preaching, he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, and that he raised him from the dead. It's almost as if Paul beats around the bush in order to, make, to get to this statement. He knows the result of it's going to be. And 32 says, And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, and others said, We will hear thee again of this matter. And so Paul departed from among them. They've already made up their mind. There is no such thing. So if you talk about it, we're out of here. And that's kind of what we see here with these, with these Jewish leaders and Roman uh, uh, guards. Uh, there is no such thing, so what do we need to do? Well, secondly, in verse 64, there's a presumption of deception. They, they figure then that uh, these uh, disciples and, and these others that are followers of Jesus, they're all trying to deceive us. So in this longer verse, it says, here are the Jewish leaders speaking to Pilate, command therefore that the sepulcher be made sure until the third day. I'm reading the old version, so I have those older words. You know, you, you think, well, why can't why can't the, the uh, high priest do this? Because they had a, a group of people, too, that could enforce things. Well, they could enforce things around the temple and within the temple, but not outside the temple. And now they're, they're talking about a tomb outside the city here where it's not their jurisdiction. They have to come to the Roman authority to Pilate and ask that this be done. So uh, they come to him. And they uh, say, make sure uh, 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 until the third day, lest his disciples, you know, deceive us and trick us, come by night, steal him away, say unto the people, he is risen from the dead. And so the last, I notice uh, you had in your version, deception, the older version has error, and it's exactly the same word in verse 63 as deceiver. See, that deceiver is going to have a deception going to have an error and he's and they're going to say that he rose from the dead they're going to say that if we don't do something about it well first of all they use this legal action you command therefore 
We want the government to step in and enforce what people can believe. <laughs> and that's exactly what they were doing. And secondly, uh, the disciples are all prejudged as liars. You know, they're, they're a bunch of, uh, they've been deceived, and they're deceiving people, and he was a deceiver, and they're going to come up with this deception. We know that, don't we? You know what's ironic about this? Let your eye go over to chapter 28 and verse 11, down to 15. You see a little paragraph there. And notice what these very same people do later. When they were going, behold, some of the watch came into the city and showed unto the chief priests all things that were done. That is the resurrection. And when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave large money to the soldiers, saying, uh, Say this, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. <laughs> and if this come to the governor's ears, we will persuade him and secure you. So they took the money and did as they were taught. And they're, they're accusing the disciples of being deceivers. And of course, they are deceivers themselves and already had this planned out and even willing to pay uh, people to lie about it if they have to. All of these things from the very beginning, of course. And then there, in, in verse 64 again, there's this fear that this might hurt them after all. That's why they have to take care of this. So again, at the end of verse 64, so the last error or deception shall be worse than the first. This could really hurt us. It might make us look bad in the eyes of the people. It might give us less authority and less power. So we have to do something about this so that that doesn't happen. Why is it that people in authority are always so concerned about their own position and their own, how people perceive them rather than about the truth? But they were here. Now, evidently, they just believed all believers in Jesus must be a part of a conspiracy, right? It just has to be that way. Some things never change. There is still that view in the world today that, uh, you know, Christianity is a crutch. People believe in the miracles of the Bible and things like the virgin birth and the resurrection because, I don't know, they just kind of need some, some crutch to their weakness in life and so forth. And this is the way it was throughout the New Testament times, too. Again, in the book of Acts, in, in chapter 17, when Paul was in Thessalonica, and he had debated in the, in the synagogues about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. It says in verse 5, When the Jews which believed not, moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort, and gathered a company, and set all the city on an uproar, and assaulted the house of Jason, a believer, and sought to bring them out to the people. And when they had found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren under the rulers of the city, crying, These that have turned the world upside down are come hither. <laughs> these people who are turning the world upside down, these deceivers, making uh, a truth into a lie and lie into a truth. Of course, the interesting thing about turning the world upside down is it depends on which side you look at, right? It might be turning the world right side up, and that's exactly what they were doing. Uh, but this is always the presumption about believers, and we find it even in the life of Paul also. And then thirdly, from the human view of the resurrection is a jurisdiction then of prevention. So we have to stop this. So in verse 65, Pilate said then, well, you have a watch. Go your way, make it as sure, secure as you can. And so they did and made the sepulcher sure, sealing the stone, setting a watch. Now, you have the government's 
participation here, first of all. You know, now here's religion mixed with government, and uh, now even the Roman government has gotten into this and said, we'll make sure for you that nobody can believe it any other way. We'll make sure. I, I like the word watch. It means a small company of, of soldiers. It's not the cohort that came to the garden with all of those soldiers uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane. This, the watch here means a guard. As a matter of fact, um, the, the Greek word is pronounced custodia. Guess what word we get from that? Custodian. <laughs> you have a custodian. Go ahead. Uh, you do what you need to do here. So the, here's the guard or the watch. So they've got the government's participation, and then you have the enforcement. Make it sure. Make it sure as you can. I think that's interesting. What can Caesar do? Can he, can he seal up the tomb so Jesus can't come out? <laughs> You know, Caesar's always tried to do these things, hasn't he? You know, Augustus thought I could, he could make a decree, make everyone go back to their town for taxing, and the devil thought that by using Caesar Augustus, he could stop the virgin birth. No way. It happened anyway. Herod thought, we'll kill all the, the children from two years old and under. We'll stop this uh, 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 error from being spread, and yet he couldn't do it. And here is Pilate uh, saying, make it as secure as possible. We'll make sure that whoever's in that tomb can't come out. And no matter what Caesar has tried to do, he just can't stop the truth of the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then they set a seal on it. So uh, uh, here's, a, here's a seal. Make it as sure as possible, setting, sealing the stone, which probably means somehow they, they have a way of sealing it so that that seal can't be broken. And if that seal is broken, then somebody's in trouble. You understand that these stones were large disc-like stones that rolled uphill a little bit, and then it rolled back down over the, the, the mouth of the, of the opening. And so they could seal it to the stone behind it. Somehow, we're not told how, but they sealed it. And, and so if that stone moves, the seal's been broken, somebody's in trouble. And probably these soldiers, it, uh, we read throughout the Gospels and the book of Acts, as soon as a soldier lets someone out of jail, as soon as someone escapes, uh, that soldier's put to death immediately. So these guys are, are, are in trouble, and they know it if anything happens here. Now, it's interesting to me that even... Still today, uh, sometimes the government has made it so that uh, you have to have their authority to believe anything. Isn't that right? You have to have their permission to believe. You have to have their permission to even speak in a public place. And I think it's interesting uh, that we read, in, again, in the book of Acts, going on still. You know what the bottom line is to the the human view of the resurrection, the bottom line is it didn't happen. The bottom line is miracles can't happen. And so whatever you're, whatever you're reading about in the Bible, whether it's creation or the second coming, whether it's the virgin birth or the resurrection, those things just don't happen. Jonah and the whale, the Red Sea, all of those kinds of miracles, they just don't happen. Now, you can have personal conviction if you want. Just keep it to yourself. As a matter of fact, you can have a a celebration like Easter about the resurrection. Just do it within your church, but you can't do it on government property, <laughs> and you can't say these things in a public or official way, right? 
The government has always done this, and unbelievers have always been happy when they have. Well, that's the view. And so here are Roman soldiers guarding the dead. As far as they're concerned, guarding something that can't happen. What a life, huh? And yet that's what they're relegated to. So we go to chapter 28. As I said, in these Gospels, just in a quiet, sure way, but as sure as the sun rises, folks, chapter 28 is going to happen. Caesar can't prevent it. These soldiers can't prevent it. The high priest can't prevent it. No one can prevent what's about to happen. I want to stop and dwell on this thought for a minute. I alluded to it a little bit ago. I want to say again, we never get to see inside this tomb. But something goes on inside that tomb that we have a record of from outside the tomb. We have to believe the record of it. We have to believe the witness to it. But no one, not Matthew, not Mark, not Luke, not John, or any of the other disciples, were standing inside there watching the eyes of Jesus to see when they opened. As far as I'm concerned, when Jesus opened his eyes, resurrection had happened. When he was alive again from the dead, that was it. Everything else is evidence. Everything else is things that we look at and say, that has to be true. It happened in a quiet way. Such a quiet way that, that uh, Jesus begins from that moment leaving evidence. The, the garments that were wrapped around his body, the, the claws that were wrapped around his body, just sink to the stone as he gets up out of them. He takes off the napkin off of his head and he folds it and puts it over here on the stone. Everything uh, is, ha and, and of course he walked uh, through the rock outside. The angel didn't open the door to let Jesus out, of course. He opened the door to let others come in and see. Jesus was gone. Why is it like that? Because we walk by faith, not by sight. Because we have to believe the evidence. And I think for another reason. I thought about this. I think that these kinds of moments are for the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When God said, let there be light and there was light, there was no one there but Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. When the Holy Spirit came to Mary, not at the birth of Jesus, but at the very conception of Jesus, no one knew it but Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, maybe the angels were singing because at creation, the, all the sons of God sang together. And at his, at his birth, the angels uh, are singing and appear later to the, to the shepherds. So, so maybe at this moment, the angel choir is singing when they see his eyes open. But I kind of think Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this is their moment. They have changed history. They have done what was in their plan from all eternity, and now everything else is going to be evidence about it. One, one illustration of that, if you, I have time to do this. I, I was sitting this morning before the sun came up, and I'm sitting and I'm looking out thinking about this very thought. And I thought, how can I illustrate that? I don't know how you do. But here's what happened. Uh, this week, Ann and I were kind of getting our springtime things out like you all do, you know, putting the chairs out on the back deck. We put up our awning and, we, and she's got flowers out there and things like this. And so 
uh, I made a little bird feeder. I made a little bird feeder that's just a, a little platform with posts on it, and it's covered with an old license plate I have from Colorado. So, and I just stuck it out there, hanging it off the edge of the deck, and uh, put the bird seed out there. Well, uh, I kind of like the, the cardinals, and I try to put some seed out for them and get them coming in the springtime. And after about the end of summer, they start getting pretty friendly, but it takes them a long time to do it. So, so I had gone out early, and I take a little uh, sunflower seed, and I put it on that little platform of my bird feeder. And I, I'm back inside, and I'm sitting there in a chair and looking toward the east, which, by the way, the sun didn't come up until about 10 o'clock today. So, uh, you know, the, the sunrise services were kind of disappointing. But I'm looking anyway toward the east. And, um, and I'm thinking about this thought, and just then, Mr. and Mrs. Cardinal come. Now, my deck is a little bit elevated. It's off the second floor of the house. And, and cardinals don't come down from above like a lot of birds do. They always swoop low and they come up. And then you just see them come up above the rail and sit there for a minute. And she's in her gray silk splendor, uh, beautiful looking. And he's in his red royal robe. And immediately she goes right to the seed. And he always kind of stands back and, and looks around and guards a little bit. And she's already over on the little platform of the little cupola uh, above her. And pretty soon he, he feels a little braver. So he goes over there. And I'm watching. And I'm thrilled by seeing this. Uh, and then they stand underneath this little roof that I had made with the seed underneath and the four posts around them. And I don't know if you've seen when the male cardinal feed, gives seed or puts food inside, inside the mouth of the female, probably so she can take it back to the, to the nest. So she will open her mouth and he will drop uh, seed inside her mouth. It looks like they're kissing. <laughs> It's the coolest looking thing. And so, you know, they do this all the time. And so I'm sitting there watching this, and typical of me, I, I'm saying, where's my camera? <laughs> and it's nowhere to be found, you know. How can I get a picture of this? And, and uh, you know that what she did was she's standing underneath this, and here's this roof, and she puts her head way back and opens her mouth, and he, he puts his mouth inside and drops the seat. It looked like that picture after World War II where the sailors got the girl in his arms, you know, in Times Square, and he's, and he's kissing. This is what it looked like. I'm saying to myself, oh, I should have a picture of this. And then I realized it's a moment in time you can't get a picture of. And I thought, how can I, how can I explain this? How can I tell? Well, isn't that what we're doing here? You can't see inside this tomb. That is a moment that is for Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and no one else. And we're going to just have to be able to describe it. We're going to have to be able to tell what happened when the eyes of Jesus came open. Because we'll see the evidence from outside. We weren't inside to see it. I wish I could show you that picture <laughs> this morning, but I can't. I can only tell you about it. So spend a few minutes with me here in these verses in the divine view of resurrection not guarding sin and death, but resurrection and victory now. And my first thought is in verse 1, the number of witnesses to this event that we have. Again, slowly he begins in the end of the Sabbath, 
as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week. A very typical statement. If you'll turn to Mark and then Luke and then John and read their last chapters in the first verse, you will read something almost identical to this. Each time, each writer says something like this. You know what one great witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ is? That we come together on the first day of the week to worship. This is one of our witnesses of resurrection. This is why we do it. So as, as, uh, some 20 to 30 years later in Acts chapter 20, verse 7, upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them. And we have in the end of 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2, upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store, bring your offerings, as God hath prospered him. And so we find that the disciples throughout the book of Acts were meeting on the first day of the week. And by the time John is writing the book of Revelation in 95 AD, John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And this first day of the week has now been called the Lord's day. And one of the things that we do and believers are doing, and those of you who have been in other parts of the world, maybe on mission fields or with missionaries, and I have in various different countries, you know what they're doing today? The same thing we're doing. They're gathering together in their time zone at their time, and they're worshiping and thinking about the Lord Jesus. And every time we meet on Sunday morning, it's a witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why we do it on Sunday, and it's a biblical way to do it. Not only that, then there is the witness of the women who come, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary are mentioned here by, by Matthew, and they are selected by God to be the first witnesses, even to go tell the disciples. I'm not even going to make a comment on why God uses them instead of the men. Maybe we got the message a little clearer or whatever, or you know, they could remember the details better or whatever it is. But they get to see it first, and they go tell the men to come and see this thing. Now, by the way... Uh, there were other women involved. It's just that each writer uh, uh, gives his perspective. Uh, so, for example, Mark 16.1 says, When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome had brought sweet spices that they might come and anoint him because they didn't have time to do this at his burial. Luke 23 says, The women also which came with him from Galilee followed after and beheld the sepulcher and how the body was laid. In other words, there are a number of women around the tomb and also uh, or around the cross, I mean, and also around the tomb. And uh, because one writer mentions these and another writer mentions these doesn't mean there's a contradiction. It just means they're telling us what uh, they saw and what or, or what was there at the time. So there are many. And by the way, the other Mary mentioned here is probably the wife of Clopas. This Mary is Mary's sister. I don't know if you remember that Mary, the mother of Jesus, who married Joseph, uh, had a sister named Mary. <laughs> it was not unusual in those days. This is my sister. This is my, other, this is my sister Mary. This is my other sister Mary. That's the way they did it. And uh, so she married uh, Clopas, and that's probably the other Mary that, that Matthew is, is talking about here. Well, so you have the, the witness of the first day of the week. You have the witness of the women who came. And, and so we could include then the disciples uh, though here uh, Matthew doesn't get around to that till later, 
The others uh, talk about how she went back. Mary Magdalene went immediately to J uh, Peter and, and John. Remember how they raced to the tomb and went right in when they got there and, and all of those kinds of things. And so the disciples themselves, of course, become witnesses of the resurrection. And the whole book of Acts, they are telling every time they preach, and we are witnesses of these things. Every time they preach about the death, burial, and resurrection, we are witnesses of these things. How can you deny that? They're eyewitnesses. And there, there's 11 of them minus Judas, and then later a, a, another is added. 12 witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. And if they are deceivers, and if they know that this is not true, then tell me why they were all willing to die horrible deaths for this truth and never recant it. Every one of them. Why are they willing to do that? And yet, folks, to this very day, we have those still making up stories about what happened uh, rather than the bodily resurrection. Then the soldiers also are witnesses to these things, and they probably will be put to death, uh, but they're going to have to make up a story later about what happened, uh, you know, but, and they were paid money to, to lie about it. When Luke records the book of Acts, after he records his gospel, he calls these things many infallible proofs. Remember that in Acts chapter 1? Uh, I'm telling you these things with many infallible proofs. Let me remind you of 1 Corinthians 15, which is Paul's account of the resurrection and the great resurrection chapter. 1 Corinthians 15, 5 and 6 says uh, of Christ after he was raised, that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve... And after that, he was seen of above 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to this present, and some are fallen asleep. In other words, as late as the writing of 1 Corinthians in the early 50s A.D., there were 500 people who saw him after his resurrection, and most of them are still alive. And if you want to ask them what happened, go ask them. It's pretty hard to deny that Jesus rose from the dead when you saw him, when you see him die on the cross, and then you see him after his resurrection. It's pretty hard to deny. Go ask him. 500 witnesses. I don't know a court of law that uh, could turn down that kind of witness. And yet we still have people today. One world religion says he didn't even die on the cross, that uh, somehow something happened, and the reason he appeared to the disciples later is he didn't even die. And others say, well, there's a Passover plot and the coolness of the tomb revived him and all kinds of theories, anything to keep from believing a miracle. And folks, this was, this was a miracle. Now, secondly, not only the number of witnesses, but the, the history of these miracles is something. As a matter of fact, now we have in verses 2 to 4 this miracle of the earthquake and of the angel. Behold, there was a great earthquake for the angel, or literally an angel of the Lord, descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning, his raiment white as snow. I mean, if you're there and you see this guy sitting there, I don't need any other proof about, you know, things that happen. Here he is. First of all, there's this earthquake, and God uses earthquakes throughout the Scripture. As a matter of fact, go back in chapter 27 to verse 50. Just at the, uh, at the uh, death of Christ, when Jesus cried again with a loud voice, he yielded up the ghost. Verse 51, behold, the veil of the temple was rent 
and twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent, and graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose, and so forth. God always uses these kinds of things. God can use the earthquakes to do what he wants. The, the, the later the disciples are put in prison, and if God wants their chains to fall off, he just shakes the earth, their chains fall off, and they go out. He uses this kind of thing. I imagine that the angel may have come down, and uh, he comes to the stone, and uh, he just goes, boop, and an earthquake happens, and that rock goes over this way and falls over sideways. Whatever. The angels have power over this. God has power over it. So, so not only the earthquake, but here's the angel, his mission, his appearance. This is supernatural. This is miraculous. These are things you and I don't see every day. Matter of fact, we don't see them at all. And here, here is this, uh, this agent from God who comes, and he's obviously not human. He's obviously not of this earth. And he comes, and he, he pushes the stone away, and he sits on it. And I think here is the challenge to the soldiers. I kind of imagine that this stone rolled away and fell over sideways, and the angel sits on it, crosses his hands, and looks at the, and, at the soldiers and says, beat that. you're trying to protect him? Sorry. <laughs> you sealed this so that I couldn't open it? No way. And it's kind of a challenge, I think. What can you do about this? And you know what the angel said to all of history? Take that. There's nothing you can do about this at all. And you know what, folks? History is, is full of such miracles. It's full of these interventions of God into time and space when God said, there, look at that. Believe in me when you see these things. Look what I can do. I've been learning and memorizing Acts chapter 2, I mean uh, Psalm chapter 2, where the writer says, why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? Why do people do this? Why imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointing, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. And then the writer says, he that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. He will speak to them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Why do the heathen rage against God? Why do they try to make up stories like this? Why do they try to seal a tomb that can't be sealed? Why do they try to cover up a truth that can't be covered up? So I think to myself, how could, what does this do for us? How, how, can, how can this help us? You know, if we try to figure out how, we can only be witnesses of this, uh, you know. As a matter of fact, not eyewitnesses, but witnesses of the information, witnesses of the truth. You know how we can best tell this? The same way the angel did. Just sit on the stone that's rolled away and point at the open door and say, there's my proof. It's gone. The angel just simply said, go in and look. And later, he does go in with the other disciples when they come. As a matter of fact, there was a second angel there, and they both sat inside the tomb and said, look at this. Just look at the empty tomb. The history has never been able to refute that fact. He is not here. He is risen. And so lastly, quickly, let me uh, give you this thought, the weight of the evidence, especially to believers now. As the angel speaks to the women as they come, 
uh, and, and to the tomb and, and what he says to them. So look at verse 5. The angel answered and said unto the women, first of all, fear not. And I say to you folks, there's no need to fear this truth. Jesus Christ is risen. There's nothing the world can do about it. There's nothing the world can do to stop it. They could imprison us. They could, they could shut us up that way if they wanted, and often history has tried to do it. But there's nothing that can stop what happened on that morning. Jesus Christ rose. The tomb was empty. There's no need to fear. And so secondly, the empty tomb. Fear not, for I know that you seek Jesus, which was crucified. He's not here. There. Look inside. He's just not there. You want to find the, the founder of every other major religion in the world, you can go somewhere and look at their bones if you want to. But his bones are not there. They are risen and gone back into heaven. And then he says, he, he's not here, he is risen. As he said, so do this, come and see the place where the Lord lay and go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead. The third thing is to go and tell, folks. This is our commission. This is what the angel said to the women and to us. Don't fear. Look at this empty tomb and go talk about it. Go do what you should do. And not only that, he says, you tell his disciples that he will meet them in Galilee like he instructed them. And I tell you, go and tell about this resurrection because we will see Jesus again one day in the air. We will see this resurrected Jesus. He will come and meet with us as he promised to do. And so that's, our, that's what we do. The gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The gospel, the good news is that he, those eyes opened. The good news is that he has risen from the dead. Whether you believe it or not, whether you try to cover it up or not, really doesn't make any difference. That is the fact, and that is the gospel. And when somebody believes that, they can do no less than commit their eternal soul to that person. I'm convinced that people who do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ do not believe in the resurrection of Christ. If they really believed in that, now they may have it in their head, they may have looked at it historically, they may look at it even doctrinally, but if you really believed this happened, you'll never be the same. You can do no less than give your life to that person. And so, if you have, then gladly carry the weight of evidence the rest of your life. Gladly give the testimony out. Gladly say, look, here's the empty tomb. The, the deniers of the resurrection are guardians of the dead. <laughs> They're trying to guard the dead. They weren't able to do it then. They can't do it now. But Jesus Christ opened the pathway to eternal life. The angel pointed at it and said, look at this. He's not here. He's risen. That's what we should do the rest of our life as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you don't know him as Savior, understand what happened. Believe it and commit your life to him. And let him give you that eternal life that he came to give. I trust that you will. Stand now with me, if you will, as we stand for a few minutes and bow our heads and we'll go to the Lord in prayer and then we'll sing a song and ask the Lord to speak to our hearts. So let's stand and let's bow our heads and let's pray. Father, how grateful we are for this truth in the Scripture. Father, we realize all else could be true, but if this fact were not true, if Jesus could not conquer death, 
if he was not the perfect sacrifice acceptable to you, if he was not the sinless son of God that gave his very blood for us, we would have no hope, but he's not here, he's risen. So Father, our hearts rejoice and we're glad. Yet Father, even still as we look at our own heart, our life, we realize that we are poor witnesses and we are sometimes even afraid. And we don't often speak and tell as we should. So, Father, help us as you help those women, as you help those disciples to give their very lives for this truth. Help us to do the same. And then, Father, I pray that if someone within the sound of my voice who's never believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, never received him as Savior, that they would look at this fact and look at what he did for them and this day receive him as Savior. We pray that you, your spirit could do the work in that heart as you desire. So, Father, now as we sing this song, uh, remind us of these truths, nail them uh, into our hearts and minds, and may we follow you with all of our heart. We'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. John's